Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're going to talk about the 2010 Affordable Care Act and the challenges in the Supreme Court uh, to it and the discussion in the Supreme Court this week. We have uh, three guests with us. Two are in the studio and one's going to be joining us by phone. Kosali Simon is here. She's an IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs professor, and she specializes in economics and health insurance policy. Barbara Quant is with us. She's the Indiana State Director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses, and she's involved in the lawsuit against the Health Care Act. And joining us by phone is Greg Zeller, the Indiana Attorney General, and one of the attorneys general who has challenged the act as well. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can join the live discussion at uh, Noon Edition, uh, wfiu.noonedition. What is that address? What are we looking for here? Oh, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Yeah, I lost it there for a second. All <laughs> it right. happens. Twitter, yeah. at Noon Edition. All right. So you can join us and have the uh, have the discussion about this uh, historic health care act and the uh, historic discussions before the Supreme Court. Barbara, from the Indiana State uh, Director of the National Federation of Independent Business uh, point of view, why do you uh, why have you joined in the lawsuit against the health care the health care act? Well, NFIB first of all is the largest organization representing small businesses in the country. In the in the state of Indiana, we have uh, about fifteen thousand small business owner members, and then nationally we have about three hundred fifty thousand uh, members, and uh, we we have a broad membership, uh, beauty shops and manufacturers to auto repair shops and CPAs. And um, so we represent nearly every conceivable type of business. And our average uh, small business owner has uh, between six and 10 employees. So we are the smallest of the of the businesses. And um, the mission of NFIB is to promote and protect the right of small business owners to own, operate, and grow their businesses. Uh, the healthcare law directly undermines this core value, and NFIB is determined uh, to fight f- against it for its members, small business owners nationwide, and future entrepreneurs. And how does it undermine the core values? Uh, it, it imposes, the ACA imposes uh, an extraordinary and unprecedented duty on Americans to purchase costly health insurance. This individual mandate uh, exceeds the powers given to Congress by the Constitution, and it, therefore it threatens the individual liberty of every American. Okay. All right. Kosali, do you want to uh, address that as a, from the, the policy perspective on um, you know, the, the mandate as the one key area that's really been getting a lot of discussion? So can you sort of address that? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'd say. When the law was passed in March 2010, at the time, the discussion really was about uh, many more features than just the individual mandate. And when the idea was suggested, could this possibly be found to be unconstitutional, that seemed really a a distant possibility. And now when you think about it and and what people are um, predicting about what might happen, we're, we're facing a much greater amount of attention to the individual mandate and then mm-hmm. that possible the possibility that that could dismantle the entire foundation of the of the healthcare law. So do you I think, think opposition just saw that as a chink in the armor and and was going after it um, from that route? Um, I think that it it turned out to be the part that the legal arguments really centered on and so it has gotten a lot of attention that for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think then people decided, you know, probably that's that's where our attention would be focused, and not so much yet on the other issues. Mm-hmm. A couple of uh, a couple of things that the the law actually says it requires most citizens and legal residents to carry health insurance either through an employer, a government program, or by buying a policy directly. And uh, then the IRS can assess fines for noncompliance. So that's that's what's really referred to as the mandate. The other uh, business aspect of it, or one of the key business aspects, um, I believe, Barbara, is that it requires companies with 50 or more employees, 50 or more workers, to care to provide coverage or to pay fines if any of their employees ends up getting health insurance subsidy if they're employees. So that's another part of this. There are there are many different aspects of this law, though. I mean, the, I think uh, one of the one of the issues that maybe is being lost a little bit is you know the law is, was set up to try to provide coverage for everyone, and if the mandate uh, the mandate was a part of it, and I think uh, part of the Supreme Court discussion this week was what happens if the mandate is ruled to be unconstitutional, does that mean the other, I think, 450 provisions in this law, does that just scrap all of them? Uh, Kosali, from your standpoint, what do you think? So there are some interesting numbers that came out from the Congressional Budget Office that looked at what might the implications be of not having the individual mandate for the numbers in the healthcare law, like what would be the number of people who have insurance at the end. So the predictions are from the Congressional Budget Office calculations that relative to having the individual mandate be part of the law, in 2021, they would expect 16 million fewer insured individuals, and that would come from 4 million fewer in employer health insurance, 6 million fewer in non-group individually purchased insurance, and 6 million fewer in Medicaid. So that's what when you think of the law as primarily being aimed at reducing the number of people who are uninsured, those are the implications of not having the individual mandate component. Then there's the what does it do to the costs, and there are different uh, aspects of how that would factor into the costs as well, but Mm -hmm. that's what the implications are in terms of the number of people insured. All right. Uh, Barbara, from your organization standpoint, I know you're you're strongly opposed to it, but do you have any, are you offering any kind of suggestions for something that might be more palatable or another way to um, to look at healthcare coverage for a broader number of people? Yeah, we we have uh, a number of, of suggestions for for it, if indeed this were scrapped. Let me, uh, from small business owner perspective, providing affordable healthcare has been the number one issue for small business owners since the beginning of time. And I, I'm a former small business owner myself, and I know how, how difficult it was. And so many of our, of our members are uh, sole proprietorships. So they're paying uh, as their taxes and their health care costs as individuals. And uh, on average, um, uh, small business owners end up paying 18% or more than, than other businesses, other entities, uh, for their health care coverage. So uh, to be able to provide health insurance for their employees, for their own families and their employees' families, has been a critical issue forever. We don't argue that, it, that, it's, that it's absolutely neat, that reform is absolutely needed. The, the problem with this is that it doesn't address the key uh, component of this, which is cost. It doesn't, in fact, it's driving costs up. We're finding we've been uh, seeing uh, large increases in past years, but we have people that are seeing 40% increases. It's it's just astronomical. And basically, we contend with the number of small business owners and family members that are not covered by health insurance. Should we uh, address the issue of small businesses and providing coverage since we employ over half of the of the people in the country, mm-hmm. you've solved it for America. You've solved if you can solve it for small business, you've solved it for the country. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, that, and that's why the, the government, I think, started to get into this, why the Obama administration and actually the Clinton administration a long time ago started to try to get into this issue because health care costs are rising so much. It's, it's killing businesses. It's killing employers. And it's, uh, it's something they're trying to look at. The mandate is one of the ideas that they had. And I think we have a clip on the mandate. So, John, if you could play that. Mr. Verley, I thought that your, your main point is that unlike food or any other market, when you make a choice not to buy insurance, even though you have every intent in the world to self-insure, to save for it, when disaster strikes, you may not have the money. And the tangible result of it is we were told there was one brief that uh, Maryland hospital care bills 7 percent more because of these uncompensated costs, that families pay $1,000 more than they would if there were no uncompensated costs. I thought what was unique about this is it's not my choice whether I want to buy a product to keep me healthy, but the cost that I'm foisting on other people if I don't buy the product sooner rather than later. You could say that about buying a car. If, if, if people don't buy cars, the price that those who do buy cars pay will have to be higher. So you can say, in order to bring the price down, you are hurting these other people by not buying a car. That is not what we're saying. That's not, Scalia. That's not what not, you're saying. I thought it was. I thought you're saying other people are going to have to pay more for insurance because you're not buying it. No, it's because you're going in the health care market. You're going into the market without the ability to pay for what you get, getting the health care service anyway as a result of the social norms that allow uh, — that, that uh, to which we've obligated ourselves, so that people well, don't get obligate yourself to that. Why? Well, you well, know, I can't imagine that 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 the Commerce Clause would for, uh, would forbid Congress from taking into account this deeply no, embedded no. social norm. You 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 can do it, but 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 does that expand your ability to to issue mandates to uh, I, I, to the people? This is not a purchase mandate. This is a this is a law that regulates the method of paying for a service that the class of people to whom it applies are General, consuming I, or, or or inevitably will consume. All right, I think we had part of the uh, that's part of the debate, uh, the Supreme <laughs> Court debate. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I believe, was first, mm-hmm. and then uh, Anthony uh, Scalia, Ju- Justice Scalia, was second, and that was uh, part of the debate that went on this week. Uh, we're talking about that health care debate. If you want to join us on the program, our phone numbers are eight five five zero eight one one. 1-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. If you want to join a live chat, we'd be happy to have you. Um, so some comments on, on that argument, Kosali? I think this is a really interesting argument mm-hmm. that they bring up because it's this idea of what our actions as individuals have as implications for others. And the word in economics for this is an externality. To what extent is what I'm doing as a private citizen, I make my decisions, going to have an implication for you and what mm-hmm. you might have to pay? Mm-hmm. And so the argument brought up was um, that perhaps – so let's think about something like national defense. We don't have the ability to exclude somebody from it. Once it's provided, it's provided to all. In healthcare, there's that form of – public provision because of social norms. That It's not that we don't know how to exclude the uninsured from mm-hmm. receiving the care. It's that we have social norms that dictate we don't. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting example of an externality because the argument being made is we should, um, by the uninsured buying health insurance, we're making sure that they pay some of their costs, whereas if they don't, they'll be others paying for it. Right. So, We're just, so. yeah, the, the argument is that you will have to pay your own way. Well, this con- this um, question of um, whether government should be allowed to mandate that we p- buy something, we've been doing that for, you know, 50 years with car insurance. And so this is a different form of insurance. What's, you know, I know it's a little bit apples and oranges, but I guess I'm kind of hung up on if we can be mandated to buy one kind of insurance, why wouldn't it be comparable to be mandated to buy another also very important kind of insurance that has a, a great impact on our fellow citizens if we don't have that? 
Well, it is different in that, first of all, you don't have to drive a car, and no one has to do, the, do that. Uh, in this case, you're, you're, you're being fined for inactivity, for not doing something. This is the first time in our history, the very first time, there is no precedent for this, that where they're telling, where the government is telling individuals that you have to purchase a service or a product just because you're alive, just because you happen to be breathing. And um, it, it, we contend that it, if, if the government can make us do this, if uh, there would be little, if any, limits to what the government could control mm -hmm. and, and force us to do. Uh, bottom line, if, if the government can do this, what can't it do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, we have Max on the phone from Columbus. Max wants to join the conversation. Folks, this, is, this is great. Uh, I'm part of Dr. Stone's group, uh, Hoosiers for Common Sense Healthcare, and I hear all these arguments from small business and people actually working against their own best interest, while the Supreme Court is making the decision of whether you know this country is going to provide health care for all of its people. And, we, and as long as we have corporations, for instance, WellPoint, having more leverage than the population of this country, and them, they help write this bill, we're going to end up with uh, nothing again, as Truman, Clinton, Teddy Roosevelt, even Nixon wanted health care for all Americans. Single pay is what we feel is the end, is going to be the really end result of it. And for all the industrial nations in the world, we should catch up with them. Germany has had a program since 1886, I think. And the United States, if the Supreme Court is taking another role that's going to be unprecedented as they've come in to recognize corporations, and I'm afraid they're going to recognize this as the corporate entities of insurance companies. They are, we really need a Medicare program for everybody. I think you'll find that before this is over with, you'll see WellPoint by IU Health Services and the insurance companies have already started this. So they're protecting their flanks by then becoming a provider. Mm. I, I, I think the getting into it, making this a political discussion, and getting, you know, politics is in it so thick right now that it's disgraceful. And, and our uh, best interests are going to be uh, politics the politicians and we're letting the Supreme Court really become a uh, paid lobbyist. So I, I, I'm really distressed on the uh, misinformation, the uh, fact that we cannot have really good discussion on this. Uh, come and walk the picket line with us at WellPoint's annual meeting. We'd be... We'd, we'd, have been doing that for several years, and Dr. Stone's leading the way on on really reforming health care. All right, Max, we're gonna Thank you. we're gonna we're gonna cut you off there, but thanks a lot for the comments. And of course, uh, Max was referencing Dr. Rob Stone, who's been a frequent guest on on this program. Barbara Quant, do you want to uh, respond to that? Well, he's he's talking about ins insurers and insurance companies and what is happening there. And um, again, we. We want health care reform, but the the ACA is a, is a subsidy to insurers. It forces healthy individuals to buy full-scale insurance at artificially inflated prices. It hands a $30 billion subsidy to insurance companies to force insurance, in turn, to sell coverage to the old and sick. So it's a, it's a huge cost shift, and, and, it, and it was done for the insurance companies. So 
in some ways, I share his sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna we have and we the, didn't go the single payer route. They mm-hmm. had that they had mm-hmm. that option before them, and they chose not to do that. Right. Okay. We have uh, lots of different uh, avenues we can pursue, but we have uh, the Attorney General of the State of Indiana, Greg Zeller, is on the line with us. So, Greg, thanks for being here. Sure, it's good to be with you. All right, great. Well, I know you know you're one of the attorneys general who has uh, challenged this law and wanted you to to offer your opinion as to why. Well, when um, when Indiana joined with the um, now it's 26 states that have challenged, you know the focus has all been on uh, the need for uh, universal health care, the the whole subject matter of health care, which is very divisive. And I, I'll agree with the one uh, viewpoint that this has been politicized. I think just to look at how the bill was passed uh, has politicized it to the point where. Anybody who's engaged in the discussion uh, feels like they've been brought into politics. But but the point that uh, I've been trying to make, at least in Indiana and with others that uh, I think other states that have joined, it's really a legal question as to the limits of federal authority uh, over both individual activity when it comes to requiring commerce uh, and also in the, the third day of the oral argument, uh, the court focused on the question over Medicaid and this relationship between the federal government and the states, which uh, have huge impacts uh, to each of their states when it comes to how we're going to see this uh, relationship that we call federalism. So it's a legal question for me and one that I can live with, uh, and I, I disagree that uh, the Supreme Court has become politicized, uh, the people who want to undercut you know, the one functioning branch of government in Washington is the Supreme Court. Uh, so I'm willing to take uh, their uh, legal decision as to whether the Congress has this authority or not. Uh, I'm not really engaged in much debate over the constitutionality. Uh, we did present a case that I think raised legitimate questions, and it's for the Supreme Court to decide uh, whether the federal government has this uh, authority or not. And I'll encourage everybody to respect the decision of the Supreme Court, whether they rule in the state's favor uh, or not. And I think um, to take it out of the just the issue of health care and put it in that framework of what are the limits of the federal government within the enumerated powers of our Constitution, that's why it took three days and six hours, a historic uh, case that was presented uh, the first three days of this week. I, I think um, your point is a, is a great point because we've, we've focused on the mandate, and uh, that was Tuesday's discussion, I believe, uh, pretty much. But uh, you're talking about Wednesday's after, Wednesday, the Wednesday afternoon session in which, um, as you said, the, the, the court looked at whether states would be coerced by the federal government to expand their share of Medicaid costs and administration by the risk of losing federal funds if, if you refused. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a different point. Well, it is, and it's it's one of the key reasons why, you know, Indiana joined. It was my decision that uh, there was so much at stake in this um, case where it would set the boundaries of federal authority, uh, maybe for, you know, the, a decade or more. Uh, we've had these cases come up um, in the 70s and 80s that really tried to show what are the the uh, limitations on federal authority under the Commerce Clause. Each time the courts have expanded it, now the question is whether we've found the outer limits where the federal government uh, can't require people to engage in commerce uh, as part of their Commerce Clause authority. And, uh, and again, when we get back to discussing the need for health care reform and insurance reform, there's nobody really arguing that we don't need reform, uh, but I would challenge any of your listeners to say why the attorney general should just trust that the federal government has not exceeded their authority. Uh, what's wrong with requiring them the same way I defend our state statutes when they're challenged? I think they're respectful challenges to make sure that the Indiana General Assembly has not exceeded their authority. 
So I think it is, you know, my point all along has been this is a respectful challenge. We didn't bring it in the 26 states. We didn't try to drag it out for years. We didn't. Uh, we did everything we could in judicial economy uh, to bring it before the Supreme Court so we could have a final resolution well before 2014 when the individual mandate and the rest of the program uh, is to take effect. All right. Uh, I hope you can stick with us for a little bit after the break in case we have any questions. And you can just, I know you're a busy man, so you can let us know if you need to go. Uh, but we're going to have to take a short break, and then we have a phone call to take when we get back. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Okay, welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking about a variety of aspects of the, uh, the historic Supreme Court uh, session this week on the 2010 Affordable Care Act. Uh, joining me in the studio are Kosali Simon, an IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs professor who specializes in economics and health insurance policy, and also Barbara Quant, the Indiana State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business, She's, uh, which is involved in the lawsuit against the Health Care Act. And also on the phone from Indianapolis is Greg Zeller, Indiana's Attorney General. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348, or you can join us online, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're going to go straight to the phones, and Eric is on the line. Eric? Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I uh, am a small business owner. I'm a sole uh, proprietor, and I have a comment for Ms. Quant. Um, that um, ac- access to affordable health care is actually a big obstacle for entrepreneurs and people who are wanting to start their own business because they have to give up health insurance that you might have at a job in order to start that business. Um, and the, the Affordable Care Act is going to help that situation and encourage more people to start businesses and make it easier for small business owners, uh, that is, especially those that have fewer than 50 or 100 employees, the number that you have to have in order to provide insurance. And um, my second comment, as someone who has been uninsured in the past um, and with friends who are uninsured, I don't know anyone who's uninsured, and I certainly felt this way myself, who feels that their liberty is being curtailed by being forced to have insurance. I think people who don't have insurance, and myself included, want insurance, and uh, the only way to have, as I understand it, to have the insurance be affordable is if everybody is in the pool. And I can take my responses off the air. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Eric. All right. First, Barbara Quant. Well, the the issue as a uh, sole proprietor, I'm certainly glad to hear we have a, an enterprising uh, person starting a new business. We're always glad to, to hear of that and who's taking that risk. And and obviously, as, I, as I've made a point before, uh, for small business owners, this continues to be an issue. The problem that we're seeing, though, is that this is not uh, lowering costs, and it's actually making it more difficult for uh, for people, individuals, small businesses to get coverage. And if they get coverage, it's at at, at a much higher rate because we're we're under that that fifty person limit, but it's driving up costs instead of lowering them. 
All right. Um, I want to see if is the Attorney General still with us? Yes, I'm okay. still with you. All right, Greg. I know you need to go in about uh, five minutes or so. Do you have a response to, to his question? Well, I think the issue about whether this uh, infringes on individual liberties by not allowing people uh, access to um, insurance, uh, I don't. I think um, the way we've looked at it is uh, we're not arguing that uh, universal health care is not a great goal. And frankly, had they been able to sustain the vote for the public option, the so-called public option that would have based it on the taxing of of people based on income and having a universal government-run program of a public option for all those uninsured, uh, no one could have claimed that that was unconstitutional. So, you know, the difference between this, where you're really talking about not just health care, but the authority of the federal government to require people to engage in a commercial activity so that they can regulate uh, the engines of commerce. So I think that's, you know, I, I know it always gets caught up in the, the same argument about access to health care. But if you can look past that like lawyers do and say, what are the limitations on federal authority to require people to engage in commerce as an exercise of commerce power? Uh, that That's a different question. And again, I don't try to argue that we don't need uh, affordable health care. I don't argue that we don't need insurance reform and access to insurance. Uh, I really do want to put the line right at, does the federal government have the authority they claim? Uh, and that's uh, it, it's strictly a legal question that I think we've now properly put before the Supreme Court. What, um, as, as you've been following the uh, debate uh, among the justices in this historic uh, opportunity, uh, what, is, what comments from them have really stuck out in your mind? Well, I think, um, you know, I was there on Monday, and even when they were talking about uh, the uh, Anti-Injunction Act, which deals with if this is an exercise of taxing authority, do we have to first wait until the tax is due and owing? Uh, and then you're allowed to have access to the courts, the jurisdictional question. The, the justices kept going back to the solicitor general uh, who was representing the federal government and trying to point out, you know, you, you have to pick a side. Is this going to be the exercise of a taxing authority, or is this a penalty that's going to be collected at tax time through the tax process? Mm -hmm. And what, what was key to that, it haunted the, the federal government because they they don't claim that this is an exercise of taxing authority, which, had it been done under the taxing uh, authority, it may well be constitutional. But they wouldn't be able to bring the case until after the taxes were due and owing in 2015. Mm -hmm. So what haunted the federal government was the same haunting question that I remember Judge Vincent in Florida and the um, Court of Appeals in Atlanta, the 11th Circuit, they kept asking the federal government, define the limits of where the federal government cannot exceed. And they've, I've, I heard it again in the Supreme Court this week, that they were unable really to show the justices where the outer limits of federal authority. And, and again, like just like in um, Florida, they said, if you can't find the limits, then maybe you've exceeded them. Let me ask you this. You've had a lot of important things that have happened uh, in your time as attorney general. Um, just to put this in perspective, do you think this is probably going to be the biggest thing that you will deal with in your time or, or are other things uh, more outstanding in, in your memory? Well, this undoubtedly will be the biggest case that we're involved with in terms of uh, the relationship between the federal government, the states, and individuals. Uh, so it's really a landmark case that uh, I tell people lawyers will be studying for a, a decade or more uh, just to try to get the, the sense of what are within the enumerated powers. So there's nothing like it that I've been to the Supreme Court three other times representing the state of Indiana, and this is uh, unlike anything we've ever uh, seen. It's really a historic case that has been brought before the Supreme Court. And can I ask you one last question before we let you go? I, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about the, the notion of 
activist judges and judicial activism. Um, how do you respond when people talk uh, in those terms? Do you think this is a case of that? Uh, no, I think uh, all along, you know, we've challenged this case so that we can bring it before the Supreme Court. Uh, if you look at what I do every day, there's four cases now where people have challenged uh, statutes in Indiana uh, to see whether the the um, General Assembly have exceeded the authority of state government. Uh, you've never heard me complain that, you know, I think it's a frivolous case or I think that it's unwarranted, because I think it goes to protect people's liberties uh, for people to challenge whether our legislature has exceeded their authority. You have to take that to courts. It's not something that courts reach out and legislate. Uh, the courts have now been asked to determine constitutionality, and in a way, whether it's people challenging state action, uh, our state statutes, or the states challenging a federal statute, it all goes to protect uh, the the, we, the people that represent the sovereign of our country, uh, so that the, the limitations of government are respected. And that's what we really call on the Supreme Court to do. All right. That, that was uh, Greg Zeller. Uh, Mr. Zeller, thank you a lot for being here with us. As I enjoyed it, and uh, I hope to, that you continue to stay interested in June when we get the ruling from the Supreme Court. Oh, we will, I'm sure. Thank you. That's Greg Zeller, the uh, Attorney General of the State of Indiana. Um, if you want to join us on the program, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-WFIU is the uh, the way to get to that to us and wfiu.org slash noon edition. If you don't so. want to use the num- the letters, it's <laughs> 9348. I like to slip that in there. I know. Right? You're, I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to go to a phone call, and then I've got some questions I want to ask our panelists as well. So, Jordan, go ahead. Hello. Jo- yeah. Jordan, uh, yeah. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, something I really don't understand, and uh, this idea of a mandate, um, we are mandated to have money taken out regularly uh, for Social Security. Now, that doesn't mean everybody believes that Social Security is a good thing, but we're mandated to do that. So my question is, how is this effort on the Health Care Act, how is that mandate any different than Social Security? And if you think it's different, you think it's okay for a state to do a mandate? Thank you. All right. Both of our panelists. Barbara, you want to take this one? Well, yes, thank you. Is it back to the um, breathing question? Uh, yes. Basically, <laughs> okay. this is the first time that uh, that uh, Americans uh, have uh, been told that they need to purchase something, uh, purchase a product or service to do something uh, just because they are alive. And um, it is it – is, with uh, Social Security, that's that's a tax. That's a program, and they they uh, uh, Congress had that option to go that way, but they chose to go a different way to require uh, individuals to purchase insurance and to purchase a pro- uh, and this is this is a, a huge cost shift when you've got uh, uh, folks being required to pay insurance, healthy folks who are subsidizing those who aren't so healthy and older and, and higher risk. And, and it, it, it forces these punitive contracts on, on unwilling individuals. And uh, it's a subsidy to insurers. Kosley? I think I, I fully appreciate that on a legal basis, it's very different whether it's viewed as a tax or a penalty. And as the Attorney General pointed out, this is the lawsuit is fundamentally driven by the legal aspects of whether it's viewed as a tax or as a penalty. From an economics point st- standpoint, it, it doesn't matter. The way it works in in economic analysis is, is the same. But this is, after all, a lawsuit about the, the legal aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much for your call, Jordan. Um, Kosley, I wanted to ask you uh, about well, first of all, to review the public option that, that was in effect, do you remember that that was, uh, uh, I think, 
the uh, it, it was part of the the original plan. And uh, but other than that, just talk about the uh, how how this would expand the insurance being provided to people, expanding uh, Medicaid, uh, expanding or and how the exchanges work. I've never really understood that. Sure. Yeah. So I think it's important to think back to what's what's the issue here. It's if you if you frame it as there are many people who are uninsured. We first have to ask, why are they uninsured? What are the new options for them under the health care law? And how does the mandate fit in? I'm putting aside for now that big question of why are health care costs so high and what can we do? These are the dual mm-hmm. aims mm-hmm. of the law, but I'm going to aim first at the, the who's uninsured. So uninsurance is predominant. You know, If you look at age profiles of who's uninsured, young adults, the rates of uninsurance by age peak mm-hmm. at the young adult mm-hmm. ages of between 19 to 25, right? So when you think, why aren't they buying health insurance and what are the new options for the uninsured? When the law thinks about having new options for the uninsured, just name what are the main ones. There is the Medicaid expansion, which is for everybody who is under roughly 135% of the federal poverty level. That's for an individual roughly $15,000, Medicaid is going to be available. Medicaid's available, Medicaid and, and the CHIP program are available predominantly to low-income families' children. So this is an expansion of a population, mm-hmm. adults, childless adults in particular, who don't have an avenue for Medicaid right now. Beyond that, there's what about people who are above that level of income and are having trouble affording health insurance now and are uninsured? There are the exchange subsidies. So you go right now to buy individual health insurance if you don't have an employer offering it to you on a contract basis part of your your employment package. It's extremely expensive. That market offers products that are not very transparent. It's it's not a well-functioning market. The exchange is an attempt to bring insurers into a standardized market where the products will be very clear what they offer, what they cover, and there'll be minimum floors placed on what they offer. And in addition, there is assistance to low-income families. So until 400% of the federal poverty level, it's sliding scale, but you get something. And then there is the employer mandate for the large employers, a fine if they don't provide health insurance. Mm -hmm. So this is part of a set of of options and the individual mandate then is another way. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And we have a live chat question that says, what would happen if every state had its own model? Would that cause disparities? Kosali, from the, uh, you know, your, posi- your position as a, right. an expert in health insurance policy? I, I think <laughs> that when, when you let, so we have the federal government deciding what are the rules that every state should have? And that's what's at question here. Or have they outdone their reach? When we allow states to make decisions, we know that states are at very different positions. Mm-hmm. The median voter in each state is going to prefer something different. So I don't see how we wouldn't end up with a more uh, you know, different flavor in each mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. So in, in a... In a world like that, could a state have a, a mandate? I assume a state could, you know, 10 states could have we've mandates and 40 could not. So. And we've seen our, with Massachusetts, the state deciding what they would do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that's that certainly impossible. Yep. Our phone numbers again, we have about 10 minutes to go, uh, a little less than 10 minutes. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Closely, uh, what would be the ramifications of, let's say that the Supreme Court says, no, this is this is unconstitutional, we, you know, this is not going to fly. So is it back to the drawing board at that point? And if so... Um, gosh, you know, this is, we've been through this with the Clintons, now we're going through this again. Um, what are the ramifications for people under those circumstances? So I think a, a lot does depend on what happens with the rest of the law, the severability mm-hmm, clause. Mm-hmm. If it's just the individual mandate itself, we have some sense of what the implications are for a number of people insured, for the cost of the program, for mm-hmm. premiums in the market. But if 
it is really a case of repealing the entire law. I think we are, you know, we're bound to see a lot of activity trying to resurrect areas, and I, this is in in the legal area that I, mm-hmm. and, and in legislation, it's just going to be quite complicated. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, this sounds like something that would throw the stock market for a loop. I mean, I can just, uh, the ripple effect of this is kind of mind-boggling, really. Um, how will it affect small business people? Well, we're still going to be out there yeah. uh, looking for a solution that uh, that will address the, the needs of small business owners. And uh, uh, we've offered uh, a number of, of solutions that uh, unfortunately kind of made it on the uh, were put on the cutting room floor when when the debate was going on mm-hmm. on health care. But uh, uh, certainly a, a free market system that uh, increases competition among insurers and allows more choice and flexibility for both consumers and small employer businesses. Um, do you think that really happens in the insurance market, though? Because I've always had the feeling that they're kind of in cahoots. <laughs> well, seriously. And so, you know, I don't really know that there uh, is so much, um, you know, what we think of as traditional competition. Well, one of the things we'd like to see is to be able to, for small businesses to be able to purchase across state lines. One of the things that... Mm-hmm. that is is so difficult for small business owners is that that uh, their their pool is so small mm-hmm. and so uh, being able to ha- purchase over over uh, state lines would be a huge benefit and would bring down costs. What about banding small business owners banding together to to be a bigger purchasing group? Is absolutely, that- absolutely, and that's what that would do. Okay. All right, we have another phone call. It's Nancy from Bloomington. Nancy. Uh, Yeah, I tuned in late, so you might have addressed this question before, but I'm wondering why the federal government can't mandate the purchase of health insurance when the state of Indiana mandates the purchase of automobile insurance. We did cover that a little bit, but go ahead, Barbara, you can respond again. Well, the the fact that, first of all, you don't have to purchase a vehicle, and so uh, that's the first thing. And and you're actually being forced to do something uh, when you're inactive, and it's forcing you to purchase a product or service. This would be this is unprecedented. We've never required that uh, of our. So it's a, it's a it's a basic question, and I uh, and I believe I heard that. Um, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy was asking this question mm-hmm. about doesn't this basically fundamentally change the the relationship between the citizens of this country and their government? Okay, thanks. All right, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember which uh, justice it was. I don't think it was Kennedy. I think it might have been. Um, I'm not sure which one it was, but who brought up the broccoli argument? <laughs> that one, that one sort of left me cold. I, I thought that was taking. I, I do understand. Um, All right, what's the broccoli argument? I'm sorry hear. for broccoli. Yeah. I'm telling you. Well, is that the government could, you know, if they wanted you to be healthy, they if they they could mandate that you have to buy broccoli. And, oh, and the ex- exercise and right. yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it was. I understand the the point. It was kind of to an extreme, but um, I don't know. It just. <laughs> Kind of left me a little cold as an argument. If yeah, they're saying that if if you were to de- if the government were to decide that the that something uh, broccoli, uh, poor broccoli, it gets really getting <laughs> such a, right. such a hard time. But uh, but if they were just using that as a, a hypothetical that mm-hmm. some some something that you should eat would uh, make you healthy and uh, lose weight or uh, bring down uh, the obesity in the, in the country, can we not do that? I mean, this is, this, is, this is a fundamental question about the power of our federal government. What can, if it can do this, and, 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 and uh, Attorney General Zeller was absolutely correct, it's, it, it, it's a legal argument, but it's, but it's critical. And uh, it, it's not a trivial question. It is, it is a fundamental question about our relationship with our government. Mm-hmm. And it, this, this changes it. It, it, it. Well, it might be, not be trivial. It, it, it does have to take another step, though, because government, people that we elect, would have to then go in and decide that they're going to force us all to buy broccoli. But are we going to trust the, that, that um, 
our elected officials won't do something that I mean, you're you're saying, well, if we do that and you know, I can't imagine them making us buy broccoli. Well, it, but that's obviously it's an extreme yeah, example, sure. but it's but this is this is the, the legal question before us. <laughs> and if the government can force us to do this, what? can't it do? All right. We have Joseph on the line. And Joseph, we have only about three minutes to go. So please be quick. I'll be quick. Uh, can you, uh, perhaps this uh, health care issue might be solved at the state level, as a previous caller mentioned. And I wondered if somebody could outline the basics of the Massachusetts plan and whether that would be applicable to Indiana. And would a state solving of the health care issue be more uh, amenable? Thank you. Coastal Simon, I believe you can do that. Many of the features that are in the federal law are in the Massachusetts law. So I think if you just at the very basic level, just imagine it's a state doing what the federal government does. Um, but it, I think, leads to this question of is what Massachusetts did what every other state would do or mm-hmm. how far would other states right. do and then therefore where would be, we be as a nation? Right. Um, would people be I, shopping from state to state for the best insurance? And. I had a question for you, Kosali. Um, uh, when we were talking about states, it, the Healthy Indiana Plan is is would go away basically uh, because of the federal health care law. That's my understanding. I don't know enough about the uh, the Healthy Indiana Plan, but I know it's it it, it protects um, uh, those who uh, can't afford or aren't can't qualify for insurance. Do you, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Thirty seconds. Uh, say what, uh, uh, this comes to issues of money under or different from states federal providing government. how a, much a comes plan. from the federal government versus the state. So, uh, just say I think there's going to be lots of other questions that come up when you think about putting these questions to the states to solve than mm-hmm. what we have in the. Law. Well, as uh, the attorney general said, we'll be talking about this again in June for sure, <laughs> and yeah. probably a lot before then. But uh, it's a fascinating topic, and I want to thank you all for being here today. Our guests have been Kosali Simon, a return visit to Noon Edition. We thank you for being back with us. Barbara Keep Quant. Keep June open for us. Right, Barbara <laughs> Quant is here today. Uh, Greg Zeller, the attorney general, took time out of his busy day to join us by phone, and we appreciate that as well. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and, and Julie Raw, and engineer John Shelton, who was sitting in today, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho. 333-1933 online at mypremierortho.com